Section 24 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Appendix 3. Reprinted from Science, N.S., Volume 33, Number 850, page 568 to 574, April 14, 1911. Histeometry as an Exact Science. In the issue of Science for November 19, 1909, under the title A New Name for a New Science, I propose the term histeometry for that class of researchers in which the facts of history have been subjected to statistical treatment according to some method of measurement, more or less objective or impersonal in its nature. These researchers have chiefly had in view the listing and grading of historical characters over the purpose of studying mental heredity or for the better appreciation of problems associated with the psychology of genius. Researchers of this type are capable of a far greater expansion and application than is generally supposed. They can be applied to events as well as to individuals. They can by treating the vast store of human records which exist in books as material for the construction of an exact science, work towards the solution of a wide range of historical problems, such as the causes underlying the rise and fall of nations, or other fundamental questions in history. Before anything can be done which shall give general satisfaction and agreement, it will be necessary for this subdivision of science to justify itself, to measure its own shortcomings, to appreciate its own limitations, as well as to prove its own right to recognition of independent estate. If we are to further historical causation by objective methods, it is obligatory first to prove that history itself, as we commonly find it in the printed records, is a sufficiently valid account of what actually happened. Second, it was equally necessary to find proof that the objective methods correctly deal with these facts. It might be supposed that the second proof awaits the first, but this is not necessarily so. If the records themselves were very much at fault, so that the statements of historians were very far from ideal truth, or if the objective methods of collecting and analysing these statements were subject to a large error, or if both these forces were in play, then it would be difficult to find wherein the trouble lay. But if, on the contrary, it fortunately be that history, as we find it in its important statements, a fair representation of the truth, and the methods of histriometry which deal with these records are also sound, then it is not difficult to prove both propositions at the same time. I will give some instances to illustrate this, which show that such is the case for several types of historical records and for several methods of history measurement. This could not be done did we not possess some third criterion, some third standard of comparison of a non-historical nature. One such non-historical criterion is furnished by the known correlation ratios for resemblances between close-blood relatives as determined in the anthropometric laboratory. These have been worked out and accurately measured for mental and moral traits, stature, head index and length of forearm. I have shown in hereditary and royalty that if the members of royal families are graded by the objectives applied to them by historians and psychopedists, and then the coefficients of resemblance are measured between the near of kin who have been so graded, these coefficients, histriometric, substantially agree with the anthropometric. Such would not be the case if historians prevented the truth greatly, or if for any other reason the truth were largely unattainable. To make this clear, it is only necessary to think what the result would be if history were merely a pack of lies agreed upon, 
as the extreme view puts it. We should then fail to properly pick out our true intellectual giants and runts. The result would be nothing but confusion. A whole series of errors would be distributed at random. It should act like rain on waves and flatten down to a common level through differences between the individuals. The correlation measurements would fall and we should get no results comparable to those obtained from the delicate and accurate measurements of the anthropometric laboratory. Furthermore, any weakness in the method of grading, any failure to properly classify the great man in the high grades and the degenerates in their proper grades would work in precisely the same direction to lower the correlation coefficients. The supposed errors of history and the difficulties of grading act as two united strands of tension to pull the coefficients down towards zero, which would be the coefficient for random distribution. If the coefficient can stand the strain without declining, then roughly speaking, we may conclude both that the historical foundation is just and that the method of procedure is sound. There are two other illustrations of method which I would like to summarize here. One of these series of tests is the trying out of a standard biographical dictionary, historical persons, against two lists of contemporaries, non-historical persons, and all three in terms of still another set of facts, namely birthplaces of distinguished Americans. The second series of tests concerns the relative fame of Euripides versus Sophocles, the encyclopedias having been used and then this compared with expert modern criticism and both with the opinions of the Athenians. As concerns American history, one fact is very evident at the start. Whatever be the method of grading as applied to Americans or whatever be the mental eminence graded, some states in the Union, some sections of the country, have produced more eminence than others far beyond the expectation from their respective white populations. In this regard, Massachusetts always leads, and Connecticut is always second, and certain southern states are always behind, and fail to render their expected quota. I have already pointed out that the ratios seem orderly for the first approximation. That is, the higher the grade of the individuals, the greater and greater becomes the proportion of those born in Massachusetts. This may be expressed as a ratio, P, into the random expectation. Thus, if there were no forces at work beyond chance distribution, the ratios for all sections of the country will be expressed by unity, P equals 1. If there be found twice as many persons born in a certain locality as one would expect from the population, let it be expressed as P equals 2, 3 times as many, P equals 3, etc., these ratios are easily computed and can be expressed as fractions or with decimals. I have computed these ratios for the 13 original states, but will present here only the statistics from Massachusetts and Virginia. It will be seen in Table 1 that Massachusetts has never failed to produce twice as many eminent men as the population would lead one to expect, and has, for some ranks and types of achievement, produced about four times the expectation P ranges between 2.1 and 4.7. Virginia, on the contrary, has but rarely produced as many as might be expected from the large white population, and the ratios in the same table are either below the expectation or not significantly above it. The other New England states, statistics not here given, have all done more than their share, but always less than Massachusetts. New York gives a trivial, though constant express above the expectation, from here southward the ratios draw suddenly, set New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland, North Carolina, and Georgia have always furnished less than their share. 
For South Carolina, the ratios again rise and exceed the expectation, but only by the slightest measurable amount. North Carolina, of all the 13 original states, has always had the worst record in the way of producing distinguished men. The ratio is falling to about one quarter of what might be expected from the white population. Table 1 is displayed on the previous page. Displayed on the page are four columns titled the list of names, total and list born in USA, number born in Massachusetts, number born in Virginia, and the ratios or number of times and random expectation according to the population at the time of their birth, divided between Massachusetts and Virginia. Table 1 is also continued on the additional page. Regarding the tables for the two contested states, Massachusetts and Virginia, and following down through the commons marked ratios and number of times the random expectation according to the population at the approximate age of their birth, one sees first that the Massachusetts ratios run from 2.1 to 3.9 and the Virginia from 0.2 to 1.1. The higher Massachusetts ratios are associated with the lists of names in which the standards for admission to lists are higher, that is, specially selected groups of the more eminent. Massachusetts also shows an extra merit when science or literature is alone considered, but this is merely an accentuation of some cause or causes which have enabled her to lead, no matter what type of success be the criterion. There is also to be seen a probably significant gain in the ratios for Massachusetts from the census of 1790 to 1850. A further study of this special phenomenon might develop some interesting conclusions. The ratios also rise when only those in living cots are considered who have received adjectives of praise. Nine-tenths of the persons named in this dictionary are given a passing note by the editors and nothing critical is said of their lives or their work beyond the barest record. But one-tenth receives such adjectives of praise as celebrated, illustrious, eminent, famous, noted, etc. A priority, we may suppose that these represent an extra superior group as compared with the other nine-tenths. A posteriori, the supposition is verified, because how else can be explained the rise in the ratio from Massachusetts from 2.8 to 3.8? If this adjective method did not select a superior group, it would not raise the ratios, or in other words, draw it further away from random hazard for which p equals 1. The more accurately it seizes hold of the right persons and justly expresses real differences dependent upon natural causes, the more it will raise this ratio. One can now see how it is possible in this way, and in similar ways, to actually test the validity of any method of selection. Its value depends, among other things, upon its ability to raise or lower a ratio in a proper degree, suitable to the case in hand, so that the ratios shall fit in and harmonise with the ratios and other results. If, for instance, the space method or the selecting of 234 men who have added the most space allotted to them in the dictionary, had not raised the Massachusetts ratio from 2.8 any more than, say, 2.9 or 3.0. We might be justified in concluding that this method was inferior in accuracy to the objective method. As it turns out, it raises the ratio to 3.6. So one suspects that the space method is not quite as accurate as the objective method, since it does not raise the ratio as much, though it deals with a small group. Of course, one instance like this does not decide anything. I merely give it as an illustration of the ways in which histriometry may proceed. I have also essayed a new method, 
namely selecting from Lippincott's list composed of all those Americans whose biographies have been written and published in separate works. This constitutes a very small and presumably correspondingly select group, 129 in number. The ratio for Massachusetts here seen to rise to 3.9, practically the maximum. It should, of course, do so the method is sound and is successful in seizing hold of the right man. This may prove a very accurate, practical and rapid method of objectively listing great men in ancient or modern history, subject, of course, to such limitations and adjustments as special problems may require. It can be seen the general raising of the ratios is in no way dependent on the dictionary containing a large number of clergymen and writers. As a matter of fact, more than a third of the names are those of lawyers, bankers, merchants, politicians, government officials, soldiers, manufacturers, and engineers. Here, by narrowing the list from 1,266 to 232, and dealing with only a small group, we raise the ratio from 2.4 to 3. It might be supposed by some that a greater attention is shown Massachusetts by writers of books, biographies, and histories, because these writers live in the neighborhood. Lippicott's Biographical Dictionary, however, is published in Philadelphia. Still, it may be influenced by previous writings and early biographical dictionaries published in the neighborhood of Boston. If this is so, to any appreciable extent, then we should expect the ratio of Massachusetts to fall when present-day persons are graded by methods which have either nothing or little to do with historical traditions. To such methods of grading we fortunately possess in the compilations known as Who's Who in America and American Men of Science, the ratios of Massachusetts do not fall. They dovetail in with the ratios from Lippincott's. Hence we may conclude that the differentiations found in Lippincott's are not caused by unjust historical traditions, and furthermore, as far as one can see, they are not in part caused by the same. Who's Who in America has been often used as an objective basis for sociological inquiries, but the criticism has been made in this book gives undue inclusion of authors and professors. I think this criticism is unjust. About 40% of the whole four are the more practical types enumerated in Table I. These are considered separately as far as initials A, B, and C. The order ratio for Massachusetts of P equals 2.5, which is very close to that of the whole book, P equals 2.6. The same for Lippincott's is P, 2.4, which is not in its exact theoretical position, as it should be higher than that drawn from Who's Who in America. It will, of course, be appreciated that the clearing up of small disagreements like this requires further analysis and the computation of the probable errors. The ratios from Virginia the first present in this abstract merely as a general contrast to Massachusetts. I prefer to make further statistical inquiries before attempting to interpret their meaning. The third series of tests which illustrate the exactitude of histriometry are drawn from comparative studies of the fame of Euripides and Sophocles. In Science, October 7th, 1910. Mr. C. A. Brown caught it into the fact that Sophocles received the first prize from the Athenians twenty times, and Euripides only four times, while since their deaths, various writers from Plato to Emerson have referred to the quoted Euripides more than Sophocles. Mr. Brown also shows that both Curtius and Grote and biographical dictionaries and encyclopedias as well a lot more space to Euripides than they do to his elder rival. This seems to indicate that the opinion of the Athenians has been reversed by posterity, but the real explanation I have found to be otherwise. 
Table 2 is displayed on the previous page with three columns of Thorites, Sophocles, and Euripides that are further divided between space lines or pages and adjectives pro and con. It appears that the problem that Mr. Brown proposes is a very delicate one. These two great Greek dramatists stand in such an exalted position and so close to one another, both being near the extreme range of human genius, that probably not two hundred individuals who ever lived had exceeded them in eminence. Therefore, compared with all men of all historical time, these two are almost merged in something like a point at the extreme end of a line. It is like splitting and measuring the components of a binary star at a great distance. It would be no discredit to any objective method of differentiation if it failed to give interpretive conclusions. As it is, it turns out that the problem presented is just within the limits of histriometric discrimination so that figures yield uniformity and repetition warranting real conclusions. I have extended Mr. Brown's list and have found confirmation of this statement that more space is devoted to Europeans than to Sophocles. This would leave the impression that Europeans is today frankly considered the greater of the two which is not the impression that one gains by even a cursory reading of the printed matter so spaced. Furthermore, I am informed by John Williams White, Professor of Greek Emeritus of Harvard University, that for the last hundred years a general estimate of scholars has placed Sophocles above Euripides. This is precisely the conclusion which is obtained from the extraordinary character of some of the terms and sentences of eulogism which one finds applied to Sophocles. In these times, authorities one never finds, for Euripides, anything like the following. There has hardly been any poet whose works can be compared with those of Sophocles for the universality and durability of their moral significances. Of all poets of antiquity, Sophocles has penetrated most deeply into the recesses of the human heart. Muller and Donaldson He renders tragedy a perfect work of ideal art. R.C. Jebb Occasionally the direct comparison is made, and then Euripide suffers, for instance, as when Gilbert Murray says, No wonder Sophocles won four times as many prizes as Euripides. Sophocles shows at times one high power which but few of the world's poets share with him. In the second, Oedipus, there is a certain depth of calm feeling, unfettered by any movement of mere intellect, which at times makes the subtlest and boldest work of Europeans same young man's poetry by comparison. It can be easily seen that this general impression can be checked up as unfriendly expressed by each ratio of the adjectives of praise, pro, against those of dispraise, con. For every single authority consulted, the answer is the same. The proportionate ratio favours Sophocles. The space method fails here to give a verdict agreeing with modern ancient opinion, probably for special reasons peculiar to the case. More plays of Europeans are extant, and there is more to be said in the way of adverse or qualifying criticism. It is not to be denied that the interest in Europeans is and always has been intense, perhaps greater than in Sophocles, but the position of the latter is more majestic and more sublime. The lexicons alone would have given this conclusion in a few minutes' reading. All these facts, in connection with those taken from Lippicott's dictionary, indicate that the adjective method is a very delicate way of measuring small differences, if for any reason is desirable to do so. The questions here touched upon concern only the individuals, but I know from material as yet unpublished that the quantitative adjective method can be applied to events as well as to persons. 
If its validity for the study of individuals can be securely granted, then supplication to events will naturally follow and I will thereby the more easily and surely established. Space is permitted only a brief abstract, but I think that enough has been given to prove that researches of this nature furnish harmony and order, intertwine and mutually support each other, form an organic structure, and are entitled to recognition among the exact sciences. It must be remembered that exactitude in science is a relative term. Abstract mathematics may be exact, but no science of physical measurement is really exact. Astronomy, which is usually thought of in this way, only gives an approach towards an ever-expanding ideal. No two new observers have ever been quite agreed upon the latitude of the Greenwich Observatory, and the last transit of Venus was, if I remember rightly, in comparison with the computer prediction, some eleven seconds off. All we ask is that the exactitude shall be sufficient for the practical needs of the problem in hand. I think it must be agreed that this first synthesis and coordination of isolated researchers presents a very encouraging picture. It indeed gives proof that a workable instrument has been obtained capable not only of dealing with questions as intricate as human nature and its attributes, but actually at the same time demonstrated the essential validity of the historical data on which are based the percentile grades, ratios, correlations and other superstructures. This latter conception is to me the most interesting side of the whole matter. It has usually been impossible to scientifically refute those critics who claim that the so-called facts of history are so uncertain and subject to so great an error and prejudice that it is unsafe to build conclusions upon them by statistical methods. They have not, of course, ever known that such was the case, nor have they ever had any way of estimating how far the records of history as they exist in standard works, encyclopedias, and biographical dictionaries actually deviate from the absolute truth. It has been assumed, on the other hand, by those who have been engaged in grading historical characters, that the records represent a fair approximation towards the ideal truth. The human record which we call history stands somewhere between two extremes, somewhere between the quagmire of complete falsehood and heights of perfect truth. It is possible, as we go on to appreciate, with closer and closer accuracy, just what deviation from ideal truth any great set of historical records contains. Such researches give promise of at last finishing the long-sought correct method of penetrating the tangled and perplexing jungle known as philosophy of history. This domain of thought is today in poor esteem among those who, as historians of the modern school, seeking documentary sources to reconstruct the past around some central theme, some individual age or nation. No wonder these careful investigators have become distinguished with the a priori dogmatism, the Bartesian spirit, the free generalizations from half-truths, and the eternally conflicting conclusions. Historical philosophers, in the desire to explain everything at once, have been content to formulate theories, and then pick from the totality of history selected facts to support them. With methods highly subjective, and carrying a large personal equation, they could not help but find exactly what they wished. The ways of the inductive science may be slow at first, but even a small nucleus of collected and coordinated facts soon grows with astonishing rapidity, and every objectively established piece of work makes it, with accelerating speed, that much easier to progress along lines of certainty and exactitude. Frederick Adams Woods Massachusetts Institute of Technology. End of section 24. And the end of the influence of monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. Recorded by Leon Harvey.